Good morning, Bethesda. Before I begin the message this morning, I want to give you maybe a trailer or a word of encouragement. I know that some of you are in this building this morning, and some of you are even gathered with us online this morning. And you came here this morning with your hearts broken. You came here this morning tired and give out, overwhelmed by the events of life and the things that are happening to you. Some of you have dealt with more physical issues than you can even keep up with, and it feels like your body is breaking down on you. Some of you come here this morning and your mind is so filled with anxiety and stress and even things of depression. Some of you are in this building this morning and watching online, and you got here this morning only by the grace of Jesus. I have good news for you today. The Lord God Almighty is with you and for you and on your side. And this message this morning is just for you. So let's pray, and then I'm going to jump in the scripture, and we are going to believe for the transforming power of a holy God to invade this place this morning and do a work in our lives. So Father, it's about you, and it is in the great name of Jesus that we come boldly to your throne of grace this morning. And Father, we humble ourselves and we declare to the glory of God the Father that Jesus, you are Lord. You are our Lord. And we invite you, my Father, to move in this place, to move in our hearts and our lives and in our imagination this morning. And we are asking you, my Father, to set captives free. We're asking you this morning to bind up the brokenhearted. We're asking you this morning, my Father, to do those things which only you can do. We are asking you to bring about your transformational work to every part of us. But most of all, we are asking that the name of Jesus be glorified. That the name of Jesus be made famous in our culture and in our generation and in our time. So for the honor and the glory of his name, we pray. Amen. I'm going to read three passages of Scripture for you that come from uh, Genesis chapter 17 and 18. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him. And Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, and my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did, why did Sarah laugh? Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. At this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Abraham was 100 years old 
when his son Isaac was born to him. I want to spend the next few moments speaking with you about El Shaddai. But before I start the message, I'll tell you a story. In about 2014, it was in the winter, a young couple by the name of Sean and Ricky McAvoy. They were completely broke, like most young couples. They lived in Knoxville, Tennessee. They had relatives that lived in Asheville, North Carolina. So as a sort of vacation, they decided to go visit relatives and share a meal with the relatives in Asheville, North Carolina. And to be quite honest with you, if you're going to have to go somewhere for vacation, Asheville, North Carolina is not a bad choice. So they go, they have a meal with a relative, they're about to head back home. They owned a retro clothing store. It was kind of like a flea market discount clothing store where they would go to auctions or they would go to Goodwill stores and other low-end kind of places and they would buy retro or older clothes that were becoming very popular in the, in the early um, 21st century. So on their way home, they're tired, they're frustrated, they're discouraged, but they decide, hey, here's a Goodwill store. Let's pull into this Goodwill store and see if we can find something there. So kind of as a last-ditch effort, as a point of exhaustion, they're going to stop at this one store and no more. So they go into the Goodwill store, and the man, Sean, finds a sweater. And the sweater is really interesting to him. He can tell that it's an older sweater by the way that the zipper works and the shape of the sleeves. And it was only 58 cents. So for 58 cents, Sean buys this sweater. Now, they go home and they put the sweater into their resale shop. And six months go by and nobody wants the sweater. They're only asking four or five dollars for it, which is an obvious markup from 58 cents. But... No one buys this sweater. And so they're desperate. Their financial situation is not getting any better. And they're just at a point of giving up. Anybody ever been at a place where the bills were so high, the situation was so desperate that you saw no way out? You couldn't work your way out of it. You couldn't talk your way out of it. And you didn't have any money to pay your way out of it. And you were at a complete end of yourself at the end of the proverbial rope. So this couple is watching television. He's watching a documentary on Vince Lombardi. And as he's watching this documentary, he sees a picture of that sweater and Vince Lombardi wearing it. Now, they've not paid a lot of attention to any of the details of the sweater. To them, it's just a really cool clothing item that they're thinking they might get 4 or $5 for. Now, the wife, Ricky, she is not a sports enthusiast at all, but she remembered that there was a label in the back of the sweater that had some name written on it. So they can't wait to get to the shop to see whose name was written on it. So when they get to the shop, they locate the sweater and they look at the label. This is what they find. This was Vince Lombardi's sweater when he coached football at West Point in the middle, late 40s. So they drove this sweater all the way from Knoxville, Tennessee to Dallas, Texas, and they had it authenticated. In one short year of ownership, they're able to sell this sweater and it's auctioned off in New York for the large sum of $48,000. And all of their problems temporarily are resolved because of that sweater. Actually, it was $43,020. 
So hold that illustration in your mind for just a moment, and let's go back to Abraham and Sarah. Their story starts in Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abraham and tells him to leave everything that's familiar and to follow him. He's called to leave his family, his culture, his comfort, everything that supplies him with a sense of well-being, God calls him to leave it. Now that shouldn't surprise us because from the beginning in the book of Genesis, we see that God is a God of separation. He's separating light from darkness, land from sea, animals from plants. God is a separating God. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word holy, which is kadosh, has a little bit of an element of being separated unto the Lord. Now, as believers, followers of King Jesus, we are also to be separated from, to be separated from the things of this world, to be separated unto the Lord with our affections, with righteousness, and with holiness. So Abraham's called out from Ur of the Chaldees. He's called to go to a land that he's never been to before, and he's called to take his family or Sarah with him. Now, they get in to this promised land, and things aren't comfortable because a famine strikes. And when the famine strikes in the promised land, Sarah and Abraham and Lot leave the promised land, and they go to Egypt. And there, Abraham finds himself in a situation to where Pharaoh has his eyes on Sarah. And Abraham knows the customs and the culture of that part of the world. And he knows that if Pharaoh really wants Sarah, he will have absolutely no problem killing Abraham to make her his wife or a part of his harem. So at that point, Abraham tells Sarah, tell Pharaoh that you're my sister. And so the deception begins. The famine ends, or at least things get so uncomfortable in Egypt when Pharaoh finds out that Abraham has been deceptive with him that they have to return to Canaan. Then he has to separate from Lot. Here comes another separation. Because everything that Lot has is beginning to compete with everything that Abraham has, and so arguments and disputes begin to erupt between them. When you are trying to do life surrounded by people that God has called you to be separated from, it will not go well for you. Some of you are living in a place of anxiety and tension because God has called you to separate yourself from some friends. God has called you to separate yourself from some old ways of doing things and you resist him and you continue to try to stay connected to what has been instead of embracing the Lord himself and what is yet to come. Lot moves on to Sodom. And he, along with all of Sodom, are taken captive by the five kings of the east. Abram has to get up and stir up his own men, men born in his camp. And Abraham and 300 men. Think about it. That's fewer numbers than are in this building right now this morning. Abraham, with 300 men, go and launch an attack against five eastern kings who are united against him, and they win. And Lot and all of Sodom is set free. I have to take this moment and share this idea with you. This is for someone this morning. When Abraham and his men go and set the people of Sodom and Lot free, the king of Sodom goes to Abraham and basically says, Abraham, let me make you a rich man. 
Let me give you gold and silver and clothing and cattle. Let me make you a wealthy man. Now, Abraham's already wealthy. Maybe he's not king of Sodom wealthy at that time, but he is wealthy. And this is what Abraham says to him. No, thank you. Because when Abraham becomes wealthy, no one will be able to say that this happened because of them. When someone looks at Abraham, they're going to have to look at him and say, only the Lord has done this in his life. Church, do not be deceived by the wealth of this world. Do not be deceived by the... Don't, do not be deceived by the attention and the popularity that this world can have to give you. Because when we get to where God is taking us, it should be done in such a way that when people look at our lives, they will have to say, surely it is the Lord who has done this in his life. Surely it is the Lord who has done this in her life. On this same adventure, Abraham runs into a man called Melchizedek. And here, Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of all that he has. Once again, God speaks to Abraham and promises him a son. Abraham asks that his servant Eliezer be the heir since he has no son, but God refuses. And then Sarah makes that fateful recommendation. Take my maidservant Hagar and let her bring forth a son. In their desperation to fulfill the promises of God on their life, they are looking into their own bank account to see how they can make it happen. And Sarah has Hagar in her savings account and gives her to Abraham, and Ishmael is born. Even after God reveals himself to Abraham as El Shaddai, Abraham still comes back and says to God, Let Ishmael, the son of Hagar, be my heir. And God says no. From chapters 12 to 18, there are mistakes that have been made. If you'll follow along with me for just a moment, I believe that we can see some very similar mistakes that we are making in our own lives. The church of the 21st, 21st century is uniquely positioned to once again become a powerful force on planet Earth. A few years ago, a well-known Bible teacher said that there were three main power forces in the U.S. He mentioned the political power, the power of education, and the power of entertainment. I had a chance to talk with him personally, and I said, you left out the fourth one. And he said, what is that? And I said, it is the power of the church. And he said, my sister, I wish you were right, but the church is no longer a power force to be contended with in the United States. I still believe he is wrong. I believe in so many ways the church has been a sleeping power or a sleeping force. And the Holy Spirit is now moving in our midst, moving amongst us personally as well as corporately, waking us up and stirring us with a hunger that can only be satisfied by Him. But we've made some mistakes in the process. The first mistake is that He left Canaan for Egypt. He left that which was difficult for that which was convenient. He left that which was uncomfortable for that which would be comfortable. Comfortable does not mean good and right. Comfort only offers us predictability, 
not change. There's no healthy growth in your comfort zone. If you want to move on with the Lord, if you want to become everything that he's destined you to be, it will require that you move from that which is comfortable, complacent, and convenient into a place that is more uncomfortable. Elizabeth Elliot says it like this, every day I ask the Lord to help me to do something that I've never done before to keep me uncomfortable. If you want to be uncomfortable, and I hope you do, follow Jesus. He will take you into places that you never thought you could go. He will bring you before people that you never thought that you would stand before. He will ask you to do things that you absolutely have no personal ability to do. He will keep you in a place where you have to rely on him and trust in him and look to him as your source. Most of you already know that I am a fan or somewhat of an aficionado of all things science fiction. I recently was introduced to a novel called Elantris, written by Brandon Sanderson. In this fantasy novel, Raven says to a man named Artrith, your sin is complacency and comfort. These two have destroyed more nations than any army, and it has claimed the souls of more men and women than even heresies. For us to be in a place of comfort and complacency, we are in a dangerous place. For us to be in a place to where the tick-tock, tick-tock of the clock can just go on, and we're all right with it, and we spend our days doing the same old, same old, that kind of living will put us into a rut that will keep us from ever reaching out to higher places of faith to greater heights and deeper depths in the thing of King Jesus. He is calling us, every one of us that bear his name, he is calling us to walk with him into a place that's not comfortable. As a matter of fact, we don't have to walk far. As we are living at a pivotal moment in this nation, there is no comfortable place. And if you say that you are comfortable with all the things going on around you, you should open your eyes and your ears and take a look around. Every day, our Christianity is being threatened. Every day, our way of life is being jeopardized in some way or some manner. Our morality is being pushed off into a corner to where that which is right is now being called wrong and that which is wrong is now being called right. We should all be uncomfortable in this moment. So the first mistake that he made is he left an uncomfortable situation to find a place where he could be comfortable and complacent. The second mistake that he made is that he felt the need to self-protect by means of deception. If I just put a spin on the truth, if I just make a soup out of what I'm about to say and stir in a variety of different ingredients and then present it, no one will know. It won't be exactly a complete lie. It'll just be the truth with a spin on it. Can I tell you, it's either the truth or it's a lie. And there isn't anything in the middle. He had gotten himself into a mess by running off to Egypt. And now he's going to have to resort to himself and create even another mess. It is theorized, and I think accurately so, that while they were in Egypt, they acquired a few things before they went back to Canaan, and one of the things that they acquired was Hagar. 
Whenever we go running off out of the will and out of the plan of God, there is a high probability that we may collect some things that will later become problems in our lives. The third thing, God repeats his promise to Abraham, and Abraham cannot get past his own limitations. Abraham is still thinking that God's going to complete his promises and do his work in Abraham's life through Abraham's ability. It's no different. There are some of you in this room this morning, and you're thinking, when I'm good enough, when I'm educated enough, when I've grown enough, when I can step up and be comfortable with what I'm doing, then I will do it. If you are waiting until you've got what you need to do, what God's told you to do, you will never move. Because God will intentionally call you to do that which you cannot do in order for you to rely on him and trust in him to do it through you. I think of Mary. She's just a teenager. She's a virgin. And the angel of the Lord speaks to her and says, Blessed are you among women, for you will conceive and bear a son. And Mary's response is, I can't do that because I don't have the experience necessary to be pregnant. And the angel says to her, no experience required. The Holy Spirit's going to cover you. God is still asking us to do things that within our own ability are not possible. That within our own reserves and emotional, mental, financial checking accounts, we don't have the ability to do it. He's asking us to do what we cannot accomplish so that we will trust him and lean on him and let him move and do his work through us. God's looking for men and women who do not have the reserves. He's looking for men and women who are out of themselves. He's looking for men and women who do not have any trust or confidence in the flesh. He's looking for men and women who will honestly say, Lord, if it happens, it's going to have to be you. And God says, it will be me and I will do it through you. Oh, church, let this saturate into the deepest part of you. This is a moment for the church of the living God to rise up and to be everything that God's destined us to be. It doesn't take a large number. Gideon had an army of 300, and they took down an entire nation. Abraham had an army of 300, and he took down the five eastern kings. God's not looking for large numbers. God's looking for large faith. He's looking for men and women who will simply say, yes, Lord. He's looking for your yes, and he's looking for my yes. Do you know that trusting God, leaning not on your own understanding, your own abilities, your own resources, your own wit, is the single most difficult thing that you will ever do? If I do not understand it, if I cannot do it out of my own natural abilities, if I cannot pull from my own natural resources to make it happen, then I'm assuming that God wants someone else and not me. But the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Not trust in your checking account, not trust in your education, not trust in your training, not trust in your experience, not trust in your talents. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
And do not lean, rely, look to. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. It is time for us to trust the Lord and to stop leaning on our own understanding. There are so many things I don't understand. As a matter of fact, the things that I do understand are extremely small and could be listed off on a couple of lines of paper, but the things that I don't understand could write novels and fill a library. Do not let your lack of understanding Get in the way of you moving out and being obedient to what the Lord has spoken to your heart. From the lessons that we have learned, mistakes have been made by Abraham and Sarah. Mistakes have been made by all of us. But here are some things that we can learn from Abraham's life. The will of God for your life, the will of God for my life, will most often lead us to seasons of being uncomfortable. If you run from that which is uncomfortable, then you will be running all of your life. If you run from that which is not agreeable, if you run from that which is confrontational, if you run from that which makes you unsettled inside, you will be running all of your life. I grew up in charismatic Christianity. That is, from 1980 when I said yes to Jesus, that has been my, my group, Charismatic, Pentecostal, Neo-Pentecostal. I have heard just about everything you can imagine and seen most of things which cannot even be imagined. All done in the name of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that I have heard repeatedly over my 40 years of walking with Jesus is this. I just don't think God's in this because I don't feel good about it. You've heard it too. Maybe you have even said it. Maybe you've used that as an excuse to not walk out some things in your life. Because what I've seen is the people who would say, I don't feel good about this. This is not making my spirit feel good right now. These are the same people that get married and as soon as the marriage becomes uncomfortable, they say God's not in this anymore and they divorce and go after somebody else. Truth you know it is. There are seasons that God will bring us into that will be uncomfortable. The times in my life when I have grown the most are the moments when I have been the most uncomfortable. There was a moment in my life where I became complacent and uncomfortable a little over 10 years ago. I liked everything just the way it was. I was teaching at Regent University. I had all the classes that I wanted. My students loved me and I was their favorite. Everything was wonderful. I loved my husband. Didn't want anybody else's husband, didn't want another husband like the one I got. I was at church at Bethesda. There wasn't any other church I wanted to go to. Bethesda was my family. And I love Fort Worth. I know where all the great places are. I know where Central Market is. There's Lily's Bistro in Riata's for special occasions. I know where all the best street taco vendors are. I was comfortable and I was complacent. And the Lord dropped in my heart at the beginning of 2010 and he said, change is coming, embrace it. I like change as long as I'm the one instigating it. 
I don't like change when it's forced upon me. But everyone sitting in this room, we have lived long enough, we have breathed in and out long enough to know that there are moments when change is inevitable, whether we want it or not. Stuart comes home from work and he says, things are not going too well at my present location. I believe God's putting on my heart to look for another position. Within a few months, he's taken a position in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and I'm loading up our house to move to Spartanburg, South Carolina. Now, Spartanburg, South Carolina is a great place. It's beautiful. It's the foothill of the Smoky Mountains. It has a pretty moderate summer in all four seasons, if that's important to you. I didn't like it, and I wasn't going to like it, and there wasn't anything anyone could do there to make me like it. When I went into the grocery store and looked for cilantro and they didn't know what I was talking about, I felt like I was on another planet. I was uncomfortable in ways that I cannot even begin to tell you. But that season of being uncomfortable brought me to a face-to-face -face encounter with a holy God where he imparted truth to me and dealt with me on a very deep level and broke me in some places that needed to be broken and showed me truth about who I am and the things that I do that I thought was cute, but he didn't think they were cute. Showed me places in my life where I needed to grow up. And so that uncomfortable season in my life became one of the most fruitful, prolific times of growth in my spiritual life. Do not run from an uncomfortable season. Submit yourself to the hand of the Lord. Now you guys know my story. After a long haul in Egypt, God brought me back to the promised land. <laughs> and I'm here with you this morning. Thanks be unto God. So the lesson that we learn the will of God for our lives will include some uncomfortable seasons. The second lesson that we learn, our attempt to take care of it ourselves will inevitably lead to more trouble. Have you ever tried to take care of it yourself? It will blow up in your face 99 out of 99 times. The third thing, the promises of God are not dependent on our resources. God's just looking for our obedience and our trust. And one thing we learn from the New Testament is that when you take obedience and add trust, on the other side of the equal sign, you'll find faith. Well, that's the context of Abraham and Sarah. Let's look at the crisis. Abraham and Sarah have been promised a son. The beloved servant Eliezer has been declined by God. The son of Hagar, Ishmael, has been declined by God. Sarah has no natural ability to receive and to carry the seed of Abraham. There's even an indication that Abraham himself is not able to impregnate Sarah or anyone else at 99 years old. Their ability to procreate is dead, and the hope of a child between the two of them is gone. They now have a past that includes failures, both moral and spiritual. They've been without faith, doubt, and unbelief. Their past is a mess, their personal resources are dead, and their future looks empty. 
And this sets up the context of Genesis chapter 17. Let's read verse 1 again with what I call the Marty twist. Now, when Abraham was too old to make anything happen, too depleted to try and come up with another way to help God out, too dead to bring forth life on his own, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me. This is moral rightness, faith, and obedience, and be blameless. Their situation has removed itself or has grown past the remotely possible to the impossible. But God has a cure. There's some squiggly letters up there. This is Hebrew, and this is El Shaddai. It's one of the cognate names for the name of God that reflects his character and his nature in the Old Testament. El is an abbreviated form of Elohim. The first time God revealed himself to his people in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, Bereshith bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. From absolute nothing, God hung the universes and the planets and threw the stars out and called them each by name. Elohim, Shaddai. Shaddai has three possible meanings. It can mean mountain, it can mean strong, or it can mean many-breasted one. Now, again, I like soup, so I like to mix everything together. I don't think we have to separate any of these out because God is a mountain, and he surrounds us as a mountain. In the Psalms of Ascent, we are told as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so God is all around his people. A songwriter said it like this, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. I want you to know this morning, Bethesda, that El Shaddai is surrounding you like a mountain, and he's all around you, and nothing gets to you without his permission. He is El Shaddai, the mountain God, because he is strong, and he is many like a mountain. El Shaddai means strong, meaning that he is powerful and altogether complete. And there is no one that can overcome and overwhelm his strength. But I want to focus on this third one. He's the many-breasted one. We are a part of a culture where breastfeeding has become increasingly popular. Not as a cultural movement, but it's become increasingly popular because we're becoming aware of the benefits to the baby. When the baby feeds from its mother, the mother is able to supply that baby with everything that its body and mind needs. Is able to actually pass on immunities and protection to that child in its infancy so that it can grow up to be strong and healthy. So it has nutritional physical value. It also has emotional value. As the mother holds that baby close to her, there's a bonding that takes place. There's a security that's passed on to that child that lets that child know, I'm going to be okay. Have you ever wished as an adult that someone would draw you close and just hold you and tell you that everything is going to be okay? In the book of Zephaniah, we are told that he will hold us 
Like a parent holds an infant closely and he's going to sway us gently and calm us down. He's going to sing over us. And he's going to spin wildly with delight and dance where we're concerned. That's El Shaddai. The general idea behind Shaddai is the one who is strong enough and big enough to surround us and to sustain us. El Shaddai is literally the powerful and majestic God who is more than enough to strengthen, surround, and sustain you. Shaddai, or El Shaddai, appears 55 times in the Old Testament and seven times specifically as El Shaddai. And typically, El Shaddai is translated as the Almighty or God Almighty. In the middle of Abraham and Sarah's crisis, in the middle of them having a promise that they cannot fulfill on their own, a promise that they are going to bring forth life, and now in their age they are dead inside. When they can't make this happen, when it is absolutely impossible for them to accomplish the plans of God for their life, that's when God says, let me introduce you to a facet of who I am. I am El Shaddai. I am the God who can sustain you in the midst of the impossible. I am the God who can strengthen you to put one foot in front of the other. I am the God who can hold you together until the promise is seen. I am the God of the impossible. Because when God tells Abraham and Sarah that he is El Shaddai, he follows it up in that same pericope or section of scripture by saying nothing is impossible with God. God reveals himself in the midst of their impossible moment as the God of the impossible. In Psalm chapter 91, verse 1, the psalmist picks up on this same idea of El Shaddai, and he says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of El Shaddai. And then it goes on in that psalm to list the things that El Shaddai is going to do. Sustain, strengthen, empower, hold you together in the midst of your impossible. He is going to be a refuge and a fortress. Anybody in this house this morning need a refuge and a fortress? Well, that's who El Shaddai is. He is your refuge and he is your fortress. He is going to deliver you from the snares of the enemy. There are days when I feel like I'm walking on a minefield and I know that if I say the wrong word or make the wrong move, something's going to explode in my face. And if I'm trying to navigate my way through those snares and that minefield by myself, I'm going to blow myself up. But I don't have to do that because he is going to deliver me from the snares of the enemy. He is going to preserve me from deadly pestilence. That does not mean more to me at any time than it does today. After what we have globally just walked through, he will preserve us. He's going to take care of us. He's going to cover me. That word cover is covenant language. That means when I need someone to stand between me and the enemy, when I need for someone to stand between me and all the accusations and all the things that happen in life, he covers me. I think about it like this. 
the garbage of the enemy because that's just what it is. It may be coming out of human mouths, but it is still the garbage of the enemy. When it knocks on my door, Jesus puts me behind his back and he opens the door and says, I'll take that. That's what it means to be covered. He covers us. He will faithfully be a shield to you and to me. And the end result of that, I will not be afraid of the terrors in the night, nor the arrows by day, deadly things, nor destruction. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. Referencing directly back to El Shaddai. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and let him behold my salvation. El Shaddai. Now back to the story of Ricky and Sean. This little couple was knocking on the door of being destitute. All the while having an abundant supply right in front of them. They had the answer to their need, but they didn't know it. It took a revelation for them to realize what they held in their possession. According to John chapter 17, in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, Jesus prays, he says, Father, I have given them your name. God's given us the name El Shaddai. He is the one that will sustain. He is the one who will surround us like the mountains surround Jerusalem. He is the one who is strong so we can be weak and his strength can be perfected in our weakness. And he is the one that will supply. He is the one that will sustain us and nurture us and give us that which we have need of to walk forward into his plans and his destiny. Many of us are finding ourselves in a crisis right now. God's made promises and the fulfillment is slow in coming. Everything within our human nature wants to make it happen. Or we may be in a place where we've tried to make it happen and for decades and now we are out of resources and we're just empty. We've been given something far greater, far more value, valuable than a Vince Lombardi sweater. We've been given revelation about the nature and the character of our Heavenly Father. He is El Shaddai. Now you guys know along with me that there's a collection of names given for God in the Old Testament to help us understand His nature and His character. I love every one of those names and I've taught on them on a number of occasions. I was sitting in a systematic theology class at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary more than 25 years ago. And Dr. David Kirkpatrick was my professor of theology. He knew that I was interested in Old Testament and wanted to pursue a PhD in Old Testament studies. He walks up in front of my desk, which was not hard because I always sit on the front row. I don't want to miss anything. And he gets right in my face and he says, future Dr. Kimbrell, because it was before I met Stuart. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, so you're an Old Testament person. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, so... Tell me, all those names for God given in the New Testament, all those names given for God in the Old Testament, where are they in the New Testament? And I was stumped. And I stuttered and I fumbled with words and he 
quickly rescued me, and he said, I can tell you where they are. Every name and every revelation of God given in the Old Testament is exemplified in the one name, Jesus. And we've been given the name of Jesus. You don't have to know Hebrew, even though it's a good thing. But you don't have to know Hebrew. You don't have to be able to recall from memory all the various names of God. You only need one name, and that name is Jesus. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee bows and every tongue confesses to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord, and his name is above every name. In closing, and some of you are going, thank God. In closing, there are three times in Scripture when God declares himself to be the God of the impossible. The first time is in Genesis 18, 14. Is anything impossible for God? Sarah and Abraham are as good as dead, and God's speaking of resurrection. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, Ah, oh, Lord God! Behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thy outstretched arm. Nothing is impossible for thee. God has promised the people that were going into captivity that he was going to bring them back into the land. This speaks of restoration. In Mark chapter 10, verse 27, the rich young ruler has walked away from Jesus because what Jesus has asked is too hard. And the disciples are looking at Jesus for an answer. And Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a man to get into heaven. And the disciples said to Jesus, then it's impossible for us to get to heaven. And in Mark 10, 27, Jesus says, with men, it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This speaks to us of redemption. Three things. I want you to think about. Are you trying to fulfill the destiny of God for your life with your own strength? Are we believing that God is our El Shaddai, the God who is more than enough? Second, are we living in lack, emotional, spiritual, and physical? Just like Ricky and Sean, they had what they needed right in front of them, they just didn't know what they had. Are we living in emotional, spiritual, and physical lack while the all-sufficient God is waiting for me and waiting for you to call upon him? Are we looking at the difficulty of the days ahead, living in anxiety and fear because I'm looking at my own resources? Or am I waking up every day with a faith-filled expectation that my El Shaddai is going to be more than enough for whatever comes my way today? I think we're all struggling with these things. But the cure is the same for all of us. In our lack and in our insufficiency, he is more than enough. I'm going to ask you, if you will, would you stand with me? And I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you, I'm going to say it in short little chunks, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, please forgive me for leaning on my own understanding my own strength and my own ability. Open my eyes to see you for who you really are, the God who is more than enough, 
There's so many things that are impossible for me. But nothing is impossible for you. So in the great name of Jesus, my El Shaddai, be my strength, be my security, and be my source. In Jesus' name, amen.